is time for Legally Speaking with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Good morning, Michael. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank, uh, thanks. Thank you for having me. Always interesting to look at the latest in the world of legal affairs, especially amid the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. Where do we start this week? Well, there was a decision just released uh, by the B.C. Supreme Court on Monday. The judges are uh, clearly uh, back there uh, diligently uh, uh, working away on things like uh, reserved uh, judgments. Um, and it's a case which I think uh, calls to mind uh, a need for some uh, fairly urgent amendment of a provincial statute, which I'll get to in a moment after I give the background. Um, the particular case involved uh, leasing of space up in Tofino uh, for uh, a couple of tenants to open uh, what was to be a takeout pizza restaurant. Uh, they uh, rented the uh, space, signed a lease prepared by a, a landlord there, and then uh, ordered a bunch of uh, equipment, including a uh, wood-fired pizza oven uh, from Europe. Um, things started to deteriorate. It sounds like they got off on a, uh, uh, the wrong track when they discovered things like the zoning there didn't permit uh, takeout restaurant, and then other uh, friction developed with the uh, landlord. Uh, that ultimately uh, led to the landlord uh, deciding to uh, at one point change a lock on the building uh, and then eventually re-rent the space to somebody else. Uh, the landlord, however, then uh, declared that uh, she uh, was entitled to the fixtures, the property uh, of the uh, pizza, the proposed pizza restaurant, including an expensive pizza oven. Uh, and she took it upon herself to have those things uh, sold uh, and uh, this litigation uh, arose uh, dealing with the, the lease and whether the landlord was permitted uh, to sell the fixtures of the uh, tenant in that way. Uh, and the reference was made, and an act was referred to called the Rent Distress Act. Um, and that is an act which, uh, having now uh, read that, uh, seems like it uh, is something which is in uh, clear and, I think, fairly urgent need of um, amendment and updating uh, in the context of the current COVID-19 um, uh, pandemic. Mm -hmm. That act uh, is an act which deals with uh, landlords, commercial landlords, um, seizing property uh, to uh, cover unmade rent payments. Um, in this case, they think it was the pizza oven. Um, now, there are a number of problems uh, with this piece of legislation because it is so outdated. Uh, it reads like something out of Dickens. Uh, for example, uh, the uh, Rent Distress Act um, lists various things that a uh, commercial tenant would be allowed to keep that a landlord couldn't seize and sell, and they include things like this. One fork, one spoon, one cup and saucer, one sewing machine, one washboard, one clock, one axe, and one saw. Three, 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 smooth, three smoothing irons, however, are permitted. And I have to actually look up what on earth a smoothing iron is. I don't know. What is a smoothing iron? A smoothing iron would appear to be a non-powered version of an iron that you might use to iron your shirt. Um, and I suppose three smoothing irons were permitted in addition to the one washboard and one wash tub, oh. uh, presumably because you'd have to have them on the uh, single one cooking stove with pipe that you'd also be permitted to keep to heat them up and to continue to iron your single set of clothing that it permits you to keep. Uh, the Act also has written into it 
things like an exemption to allow uh, a tenant to keep the tools and implements uh, or personal property ordinarily used in the debtor's trade or occupation to a value of $200. So back at a time when people were using smoothing irons and would be concerned about their one washboard and single fork, um, a $200 exemption uh, might have been reasonable. This needs to be updated and, to my mind, needs to be updated now. Uh, because you can see the kind of mischief uh, that uh, this very outdated piece of legislation could cause in the current climate. Yes. If, for example, you had a restaurant, I walked today uh, through the empty streets of uh, downtown Victoria, and virtually every restaurant is closed. Yes. I expect that none of them are in a position to pay uh, rent to landlords. And if you have landlords, if they decided to exercise uh, authority under um, things like the provisions of the Rent Distress Act, um, you're going to have a circumstance where um, all of the necessary equipment for somebody to reopen could be taken and sold, making it impossible uh, for that business to uh, reopen uh, in the future. Uh, this outdated piece of legislation, even if you can believe it, includes things like permission for landlords to break into houses lawfully to recover any property that their debtor tenant might have taken out of their shop. So if somebody brought their, wow. you know, second, um, you know, wash tub or more than one clock or one lamp or the various other ridiculous items listed, a landlord would be entitled to uh, attend to the person's home uh, and break into it. Uh, uh, their employee, the landlord themselves, uh, uh, and recover those things. That just doesn't make any sense in 2020 in the middle of a pandemic. And so um, this act needs to be urgently and immediately updated. Um, you would hope people aren't acting in an unreasonable fashion, but we can't simply count on that. Uh, and if anyone from the provincial government is listening, they should pull up the Rent Distress Act. <laughs> it's a Revised Statutes of British Columbia, 1996, Chapter 403, uh, and if they can find some way to get this thing immediately amended, uh, they should be doing so. We do not need to have every restaurateur left with a single fork and spoon um, as landlords uh, try to seize and sell things uh, when uh, restaurateurs and others are unable to pay their rent. This is something which is in current use. The court was referring to it this week, uh, and it is completely out of date, uh, and these provisions need to be changed uh, in order to prevent the possibility of... Uh, uh, serious uh, harm and real unfairness. Um, and any time, I think, in legislation, when you start writing in uh, figures and things that might uh, have been sensible and who knows when this thing was written, uh, they very quickly uh, lose all meaning. Uh, and we don't want to have the result of uh, when some small business person is unable to pay the rent, yeah. uh, all of their personal possessions being sold um, in order to uh, meet that. So, well, more needs to be done. This needs to be fixed, uh, to my mind, right away. Absolutely. What is the time interval that must transpire before the legislation may be engaged and property may be seized? It doesn't have a time limit. Oh. Um, the, uh, in this particular case, the one that I referred to, mm -hmm. um, it was interesting. The, uh, the Tofino restaurant that didn't, uh, didn't make it, uh, that one, the landlord uh, had drafted the lease agreement, but then she didn't follow the provisions of the lease agreement. Um, she changed the locks, she re-rented the space, uh, and then she declared, according to the judge, 
um, if you haven't got the fixtures out, I own them. <laughs> uh, and then proceeded to sell the various things, including this expensive pizza oven. The judge found that the landlord did not have authority to do that. The rent, in fact, had been paid because she kept a damage deposit that was provided for in the lease, okay. and then she re-rented it. So she lost no rent at all. One of the interesting provisions of this, the Rent Distress Act, is that if a landlord improperly takes things like that and sells them, which the judge found the landlord did uh, in that uh, restaurant case from Tofino, it provides that the tenant is entitled to double uh, the value uh, of the things that the landlord improperly took and sold. And so here, uh, the unfortunate would-be restaurateurs wound up with twice the value that the landlord got for the pizza oven. Uh, unfortunately uh, for them, what the landlord managed to get uh, for the fixtures was less than what they had paid for this uh, uh, unfortunate uh, business venture. So. Yeah. There are some provisions in there and uh, that uh, may be helpful to a tenant, but plainly we need to update uh, these things and get the figures and items in touch with uh, 2020 uh, and not something out of the 1800s when people had were concerned with whether they had a, uh, you know, a pipe for their one cooking stove uh, or single lamp that this act would permit them to keep. One clock. You have to use that very parsimoniously when choosing which room the clock will be housed in. Or perhaps it'll be moved around the home. Yeah, you can spread it out. You're also permitted to keep one axe, one saw, one shovel, a single wash tub, one washboard. And maybe you can spread out your three smoothing irons into different rooms. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, well, that's. Uh, thank you for bringing that one to our attention. Hopefully any potential issues there get dealt with in a timely manner. The latest from the B.C. Supreme Court explaining its response, Michael, to COVID-19. Yes. Now, this looks like it may have been uh, potentially a response to a, an editorial written uh, about a week ago by Ian uh, Mulgrew in the Vancouver Sun. And the editorial that uh, Mr. Mulgrew wrote, it was entitled, Gin Before Justice in Canada, Pity. And the, the thesis of the editorial was, look, we've deemed um, you know, alcohol sales to be an essential service. Why is it that B.C. courts are closed? You know, the rule of law isn't functioning or enforceable except in urgent cases. So it was, uh, editorial was critical of the um, judiciary uh, only hearing urgent cases and adjourning other matters. Um, and certainly that's an understandable uh, point, right? If you were prioritizing maintenance of the rule of law and weighed up against selling liquor, um, you know, we have clerks coming into, um, you know, stores putting themselves in jeopardy to sell, um, you know, liquor and food and various other things. You know, shouldn't we be able to come up with some way to keep the courts open in a mo more fulsome way? Hmm. Now, what the court released, uh, the B.C. Supreme Court released, it released what was entitled Message from the Supreme Court of British Columbia, uh, articulating why it was that the court didn't think it could open up in a more fulsome way. And it made uh, a few points. One of them was to reference jury trials yes. and the fact that it's simply not optional to serve on a jury. It's your civic duty uh, and putting people in, um, forcing people to be sitting with 11 other individuals uh, in a small space currently would not be uh, tolerable. Um, it also pointed out witnesses are not there voluntarily. They're compelled to attend. Um, this was an interesting point as well, and I think it sort of goes to the issue of, um, you know, can't we do more of these things by use of technology? Mm -hmm. um, you know, can't we, could we have, for example, court proceedings operating with uh, Zoom or 
um, you know, Skype or some other technology like that. Um, and I should say there have been some efforts in that regard dealing with those urgent cases, like things like uh, uh, bail hearings or in-custody matters when they have a, what they've been doing is having a judge in a courtroom, having the in-custody person appearing by video link from the jail, and then having the lawyers by telephone making submissions. The some challenges arise with that, though, including ability of everyone to hear what everyone else is saying. Like, can the person in custody hear what the, you know, prosecutor is saying on the speakerphone? So there's some technological problems like that. But a more fundamental issue that the court points out in this uh, latest uh, release is the concept of transparency um, and pointing out that courts are open to the public and justice needs to be transparent and people need to be able to see it. So one of the other technological things that would need to occur would be, in addition to allowing a mechanism where everyone can see and hear each other clearly, there needs to be a way that the public would be able to see what's being done uh, in court. Yes. It would not be satisfactory if we had trials going on in a sealed building and nobody was able to report on them or see what on earth is going on. Um, now, that doesn't seem like an impossible problem to solve, but it is an important problem, and it does need to be addressed. Would it not also, Michael, at least risk becoming a de facto change that would allow the televised broadcast of court hearings, which up until this point has been something that is very uh, that has not been chosen by the judiciary? Yes, that that is that could be an effect. Now, one thing I can say is that the courtrooms are, and there would be technological issues of having a proper camera so people can see it. Now, that's not insurmountable. Yeah. The Supreme Court of Canada, for example, has a camera system. True. And it's completely automated, so it's not distracting. It's hooked up with the microphone. So whoever is speaking, the camera then focuses on that person. So you can watch it on TV if you want or online. Yes. Um, courts currently, um, well, they don't have that equipment in them. They are all equipped with audio recording equipment, which is all digital. And so it's called DARS. So everything said in a courtroom uh, is recorded and sort stored on a server. And it allows for things like in a jury trial, you can replay uh, evidence if a jury needs something to be played back to them. Or a judge in their chambers can simply go and click on it and listen to, like, you know, listen again to evidence if there was some important point they might have missed. That uh, digital uh, access is also provided where transcripts are ordered so they can be typed up. So I could imagine a system using the current audio recording system uh, whereby uh, we could permit um, uh, interested parties to listen um, to what was said in court. Now, I guess there have been concerns about the broadcast of the audio. I think various concerns have been raised, including things like, you know, would that interfere with um, witnesses uh, feeling like they can testify uh, in a, uh, a complete fashion? But it seems to me that while there are and have been concerns about that, in the current context, all these things are a matter of weighing up uh, the pros and cons, right? And if this problem is a protracted one, uh, as it uh, may be, some of those concerns, it seems to me, are lesser concerns than allowing uh, the rule of law to prevail and the justice system to function. Um, and so I can see a, a mechanism using the current uh, technology that would uh, permit court proceedings to be available 
um, online so people could at least listen to them. Yes. Um, and that's going to really give you the, the substance of it. I mean, uh, sure, somebody might be preferable if you had a, uh, a camera there, you could be there in person. But in, in terms of dealing with that need for transparency, it seems to me that that is a solvable technological problem uh, if you simply permitted reporters or the public, anyone who was interested, uh, to listen to everything that was said and all the reasons that were given. That, to my mind, would solve the transparency issue, which is an important one. And then if you had a mechanism by using um, something like uh, Zoom or Skype or uh, any of those things that would permit the judge to see counsel and see the other parties, you might not be able to do everything, uh, but it would uh, open up uh, another category of things which could be done. We may not be able to run a jury trial, but perhaps we can run that important uh, family court uh, proceeding, or we could run that civil case people have been waiting on uh, a long time where it's only a judge if we can get everyone hooked up. Uh, there's no magic to uh, the particular room even, right? We yeah. need to have the judge. You've got to hear the witnesses and parties. But um, So uh, there are challenges there. They're working on it. But I think the, the point Mr. Mulgrew made is, uh, is well taken. Uh, and uh, all of us involved in the system are, are aware of the challenges and are um, I think uh, as this goes on and we get some sense as to whether this is simply uh, a few weeks and, you know, non-urgent cases can be put off, because what they've done is they've just put off non-urgent cases uh, into June and July to fix new dates. And if we're all back up and running in June, well, that might be workable. But if we cannot have uh, juries and witnesses and others in person for many months, we can't simply push the problem further and further down the road because the, the justice system doesn't have a lot of extra slack. No, not a, um, no very, very little in fact. I need to take a break, Michael. Can we come back in just a sec? Yes, thank you so much. Okay, right on. Let's take a quick break. Sorry, I lost track of the time there. Commercial break, back after this. Back on the air here with CFAX 1070. Another four and a half minutes left in today's segment. Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers talking about how the courts are modifying their procedures to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think you made a very important point, Michael, is that the paths that we chart forward largely depend on our expectations of how long they will need to be sustained. Brief interruptions can be tolerated, but if this is to be extended well into the summer and beyond, more permanent solutions will likely be sought sooner rather than and later. You're, you're quite right. We just can't push every case off indefinitely. If it's a few weeks, fine, we'll do our best and we'll catch up. Uh, but if it's uh, longer than that, I think we will need to explore some other more fundamental, the different uh, approaches to try to get as many things done as we possibly can so that the system isn't uh, intolerably backed up. Um, the other thing to mention in just a few minutes we have uh, remaining, yes. uh, we've talked about previously the concern about people in jail uh, contracting COVID-19 uh, and uh, staff and others. Uh, some progress is being made in that regard. Uh, there have now been apparently 95 inmates uh, who are serving largely intermittent sentences, like serving them on weekends, yes. uh, who have been uh, released to serve those uh, at home, not have them come in every weekend. And you can imagine just how dangerous that uh, state of affairs would be having people, uh, you know, that were serving a number of days on weekends uh, coming in and out of a correctional center would be a, just a re recipe for having everyone uh, involved uh, pretty quickly infected. Yeah. Um, and so uh, in BC, uh, I think 95 of those individuals have been uh, administratively permitted not to come in on weekends. Um, they're clearly not in the category of dangerous 
uh, people that need to be kept in jail. After all, they were going out to work Monday to Friday, usually, and serving their sentences on the weekend. So that's an advancement. Um, courts are also now struggling with the issue of uh, bail and detaining people or not detaining them while waiting for their trial. Uh, and uh, judges are dealing with those things on an individual basis, uh, bearing in mind the considerations on bail, like whether you keep somebody in jail waiting for their trial, include things like, first of all, are they going to show up if you let them out? But then the uh, other principal consideration would be whether it's necessary to detain somebody uh, for the protection and safety of the public. Uh, and courts have uh, now in BC made clear in several decisions uh, that uh, the uh, risk to um, accused people and others in custody and the community broadly uh, need to be taken into consideration when determining whether a, a detention is necessary uh, for the protection of the uh, safety of the public. Uh, and the existence of COVID-19 is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. No. And, and where you have people who are dangerous or unlikely to uh, show up or likely to commit further offenses if released or, in fact, would be no safer if they were released, you know, somebody who's living a lifestyle uh, that might be very dangerous if they were to be let back out, are still likely to be detained. But it is a consideration now uh, for judges. They need to think about that, and they are thinking about it. And you see decisions on both sides of releasing or detaining somebody, taking into account factors like the danger that being detained would pose both to that person and to the community generally, because, of course, every person who winds up being infected while they were either, you know, serving a weekend sentence or held in jail is one more person that may be in the hospital on a ventilator or uh, spreading the disease to others. Um, so the courts are now taking that into consideration when making uh, bail decisions, uh, and then administratively the institutions are considering uh, whether there are circumstances like with the weekend uh, prisoners, uh, whether there should be uh, releases there uh, to reduce uh, the risk uh, of uh, infection, because we've already had reports uh, in BC of uh, uh, inmates being infected. Yeah. Um, so we, we just need to address that. Michael Mulligan, uh, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, every week, legally speaking, on CFAX 1070 during the second half of our second hour. A pleasure as always, Michael. Thank you for your knowledge and insight. Stay safe, and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you so much. You as well. All right. Take care. Bye now.